2: This podcast often deals with graphic, violent and horrific crimes against men, women and children. Please listen at your own discretion. If you are affected by any of the themes featured in this episode, please contact your local support charity.
1: Parts were found in Tupperware containers. Eventually, we realized it was a, a pair of severed female breasts. Some single lady is our face. Uh, maybe, like maybe he got a kick out of it. He didn't explain why. I don't know. And within a couple of days, he came back and wanted his photographs.
3: The newspaper, all we talking, the TV, all we talking,
1: and we didn't have a head.
2: Catching Worms, a Hong Kong true crime podcast. From the murders so far, Lam had rolls of film. Images of dismembered body parts, close-up shots of vaginas and female breasts. Bloody scenes artistically recorded. Lam Corwan took a roll of film to a local Kodak store to get them developed. He walked in to collect his incriminating evidence. The technician did his due diligence and opened the packet to check the quality of the prints. Disturbed by what he saw, he asked the man in front of him what he was looking at. Lam coolly responded that he was a medical student and, with a smile, picked up the packet of photographs and left the store. Lam was egged on by the thrill of getting away with murder.
1: At the trial, we had three or four metal uh, filing cabinets full of exhibits. And one, if not two of them, so you can imagine they're all three draw, big three bucket drawers. I think two of them contained nothing but his photographic equipment. And it was all good quality stuff, um, our guys at police headquarters confirmed. So he told us that ever since he had been able or capable of earning, he had been spending Money on photographic equipment, if not cameras. This was a silly thing because in his r- room um, he had the capability to um, develop his own photographs and enlarge them because in this little attache case that I told you, when we finally cracked that and got inside, there were lots of sort of enlarged prints like that lying flat. And he'd made all of them himself. He'd done all of those himself. So why on earth he went down to a shop and handed in the thirty-six roll of 36 pictures, I have no idea. Uh, maybe, he liked, maybe he got a kick out of it. He didn't explain why, I don't know. So he was certainly capable of doing enlargement, photo enlargement through a negative, all of that. Um, he had developing trays, Uh, In the room.
2: So, despite having his own home darkroom, in August 1982, Lamb tried his luck again. He dropped two different films into two different Kodak stores for development, thinking he was spreading the risk. It was the 18th of August, and Lamb went to collect his photographs from the local Kodak store in TST. Detective Martin Richmond remembers that day well.
1: No, I was brought in um, when. um Lambs photographs were discovered the circumstances of that were quite fortuitous because how he did not realize this I don't know because he was processing photographs through uh, you know photo processing shops very frequently or maybe he did know that Eastman Codacolor who had a big processing plant down in North Point the actual processing process from handing in at the shop to handing them, handing back the, the yellow packet with the negatives and the photos in was almost entirely mechanized. Certainly down at Eastman Code Colour, they had everybody's in Hong Kong's prints and negatives going around a huge machine completely automated but, uh, save and except for uh, occasional quality control. And it was literally, you've got a huge run of photographs if you can imagine, thousands of them coming down a belt. And the the foreman or whoever he is just goes along and goes, like that, completely random. Picks one out, has a look at it, and got a bit of a shock. He then took the photograph to his boss. Again fortuitously, at the time, the police identification bureau, Photograph and Fingerprint Bureau purchased all of their films and processing paper from Eastman Kodak. And so the manager down at North Point and the senior superintendent in police headquarters in charge of identification bureau were, were very good friends. They knew each other very well. So the manager rang him up and said, we've got something funny going on here we think it might be some uh, medical students fooling around. And uh, then from the senior superintendent in charge of IB, he rang up my boss at the time and off they went to go and pick up this packet of photographs. And happily they did do enough inquiry down at Eastman, a code of color to, to find out where these negatives had been dropped in uh, in the little shop in Chibsachoy, I think, and when they were expected to be delivered back. And uh, we had a look at them and just looking at them, it was um, uh, they were most peculiar. They were um, photographs of initially it didn't. You couldn't tell if it was a pair, but eventually we realized it was a, a pair of severed female breasts. So everything really started from there, it was quite a simple process and um, the shop was staked out and within a couple of days he came back and wanted his photographs.
2: Two plain-clothed officers were positioned at the codex door. Acting as customers, they browsed the shelves, milled about on the street outside and waited. The photo technician checked every slip handed in carefully waiting to come face-to-face with Lam Kor Wan. On Wednesday, August 18th, 1982, Lam walked into the TST store to collect his prints. The technician looked down at the slip he was handed and then, signalling to the officers, watched as they calmly placed Lam Kor Wan under arrest and walked him back outside into the hot Hong Kong streets.
1: So he was arrested taken to his taxi, which is around the corner. The taxi was dealt with. There were things like handcuffs in the taxi, uh, a lot of electrical wire, um, sacking and stuff like that in the boot. But even so, at that stage, we had no idea what we were really dealing with.
2: He initially claimed the photographs were not his, belonging to a Mr Fong who apparently used his bedroom as a secret photography studio. This lie did not last long.
1: So back to his home, which was a very small flat. It was probably, it was probably a three-bedroom flat, but the, small, the bedrooms were very small, you know, 100 square foot, 10 by 10, not much bigger than a cell. And his, his bedroom as you came into the bedroom you were confronted with the a a bunk bed and uh, on the left a very crowded uh, bookshelf with lots of uh, magazines and music albums and stuff like that Uh, but underneath the uh, bed was like a a most peculiar looking uh, thing it was a large Metal ammunition box, and uh, with the sort with the clamp um, lid on it. Once you got inside that, there were several of these Tupperware boxes, all taped up and around. They were full of liquid and various other bits and pieces. Uh, There was a small silver-looking attaché case, um, which contained quite a a number of. uh, his photographs uh, but then the rest of the uh, the room was just very jumbled so we we got everything out of the room and started to go through it including uh some videotapes which were uh, what had originally been used to tape things like batman and, but then which would suddenly break into this room um with him with his back to the camera uh, all lit up and then you realise that, you, you know, he's got a body in front of him, a female body.
2: Lam's family wanted to escape the horrors of this room, later trying to sell the apartment on the highly desirable Hong Kong property market, but to no avail, forcing them to remain living in a crime scene for decades. The police could not believe that the scenes they had uncovered at Lam's home could have been accomplished by one man working alone. It was too hideous. So they arrested Lam, his father and his brother.
1: So when he started to talk, uh, he was pretty monosyllabic when we first brought him in. We had a, a wonderful detective station sergeant, Leung, I think Leung Ping was his name, and uh, he was very experienced taking, in the old days, before we had video statements and things like that. He was uh, an old-fashioned scribe, and he used to sit with people for hours and hours and write everything out. And he developed as much of a relationship with Lamb as you could, just very gently sort of probing him. Uh, but I remember we, we had the brother, the young brother, in. We'd arrested his father too, and the brother, uh, but we had the young brother in, and the young brother uh, I think engaged to be married and was working and seemed like quite a nice young guy. And um, we had Lamb in a room, and we'd been interviewing the younger brother, and we wanted to move the younger brother room to room down the corridor. <laughs> and. Uh, as the young brother was being brought past this door he looked into it it wasn't a big room but he looked in and there was lamb and uh, put it this way the young boy leapt at him screaming and swearing calling him a bastard <laughs> and had to be restrained and dragged off so when we dragged him off uh, lamb was obviously a bit uh, upset By this and um, that's when he started to to tell us what had been going on quite frankly he he didn't need a lot of probing it was as if the uh the dam had burst and he just started to offload himself and uh, away he went he he didn't spare any details he was quite uh, willing to explain everything
2: the story broke and it was a media sensation Simon Ng, a taxi driver at the time, remembers the public's reaction.
3: Yeah, uh, yeah, I know. Also also here, the life sentence. Yeah. He, 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 his life sentence. Do you remember this story? Yeah, 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 remember.
2: Yeah, what was it at the time, in 1983, when this happened? Uh, What did you think? Because you're a taxi driver. What was your thoughts?
3: Some single lady is (laughs) <laughs> this uh, single lady at the li- light time, they, they were afraid to not take the taxi A uh, single. Uh, also because the, the newspaper are always talking, the TV are always talking. So at the time, no, uh, no, no single uh, lady take the taxi, <laughs> yes no more, no
2: more
3: oh. at the time.
2: Wh- wh- ha- what year were you born? I
3: born in 1957.
2: 1957. So you a similar age. He was he was born 1955. Oh. So yeah. So you have to. Yeah, I understand. The people getting the taxi. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Detective Martin Richmond had his confession. The media had its story, but they were yet to find the bodies. Lam Corwan had met four women, picking them up in his taxi and driving them to secluded locations. Here he strangled them with electrical wire and carried their bodies into his family's apartment. He hid the bodies under the family sofa and then climbed into bed himself. Pretending to sleep, he waited, listening to his mother make breakfast and his brother look for his keys. The family pottered about, unaware of the corpse in their living room. Then they left for work. As Lam heard the door click, closed, he got up, and set up his makeshift pornographic studio. With cameras rolling, he dissected the bodies using an electric saw, scissors and a scalpel. He cut out their vaginas and severed off their breasts.
1: The the body parts were found in... uh, ..tupperware containers under the bed. And
2: then the rest of the bodies, predominantly, were found in Taihang Road?
1: Yes, you? they were.
2: Why do you think he chose
1: that location? Just because he, he could drive his, uh, drive his taxi along there at 1, 2 o'clock in the morning, very, very quiet. And he had <coughs> wrapped the bodies um, in both plastic sheeting and then Kind of sacking material. I mean, I don't know how, whether you know the walk along that part of Taihang Road. If you start at the far end opposite Bowen Road, you know, opposite that big roundabout, uh, the Taihang Road starts across the road from that. Now, if you just walk back towards town along Taihang Road, it's quite remarkable at times. It's very, very steep and quite well overgrown. There are a number, as you walk along, there are a number of uh, rivulet or uh, drain going down. But it's very, very steep. When we went up there, when he told us that there were bodies up there, we took him up there. And he, uh, we walked along with him. He he literally just stopped and said, well, there's one there. And we looked (laughs) and we went down and it was... Within 15 meters or so from the, from the pavement, you could not see it. It was covered in hessian, covered in, you know, leaves and stuff like that. And he'd rolled it down, and it had just rolled down, rolled down, until it had got stuck on some saplings and... But
2: he didn't seem
1: remorseful when he was taking you to... No, no. The first body up, up in my own sand, that was in various parts, so there were three along, I think, three along Taihang Road altogether. The young girl body, which would have been the last one, was the most difficult because she was further along, in fact, towards town. And where he had pushed her body over, there was a gap in the railings. And it was almost a, it was a, a, a concreted slope by this stage, and it was pretty sheer. But she, her body had just slid down for a long way, 20 metres or more, and was caught by the, uh, the not the ditch, but by the drain that ran along the bottom.
2: Like a
1: catchment? Almost. A catchment drain, exactly. And so her body w- was brought back uh, her body, the wrapping was in, f- had come apart, and we didn't have a head.
0: A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend.
1: However, on the Boxing Day, I think it was, of that year, or after Christmas, we got a report from a lady uh, who was a park cleaner in the little public sitting-out area and park which is uh, very much the Taihang end of that Taiang Road, almost at the top before you come down into Causeway Bay. And there's a little park there. And she was doing her normal rounds and came across a skull. And she'd done what all good park cleaners do. They've got those little tin trays and a brush, you know. And she put the head and taken it to an area over a low wall where she dumped all of the trash that at least she she told us so we we went because i i remember because i had to get hold of a wonderful chap who was called professor ronald fernhead who was an emeritus professor of dentistry wonderful man who had worked with the home office pathology department in the uk before and he was a young lad and worked at the university of hong kong dental hospital and he's famous in this case there is there is medical journal stuff which was published on this he always regaled anybody he could with the story about how Hong Kong was a unique place and that because everybody has to have an ID card taken there's an opportunity for the government to take pictures of people's dentition because you force them to smile but you've got they measured focal length on the camera and they all had to stand against a scale and height and all of that. And he reckoned if, if the government did that he could identify anybody found anywhere from an ID card photograph and in our case we had the families go back and find full-face photographs, uh, particularly showing dentition of the victims, and particularly try and tell us, well, how far would this be taken from? And then Fernhead and his people at the Prince Philip Dental Hospital did X-ray photographs of the skulls and the teeth and did photo superimposition. So you had a live picture, which was re-photographed and he had the negative of that, and then he had the X-ray photograph of the skull and the face. And he basically, he built up a superimposed one on the other. And as, as long as there was a correlation between the, the distance between the pupils, you could virtually say that skull belongs to the person in that photograph.
2: Due to the dismembering of the bodies, as well as the months that had passed, the victims' bodies were unrecognisable, making it a positive ID very difficult. But for the last victim, it was even harder. Lam had confessed in August 1982, but by Christmas of that year, they had still not found the head of his last victim, Leung wai
1: Sum. Because when we took him to this little park in Taihang Road, the poor lady <laughs> who'd found him. this was still there, shaking, literally her knees were shaking. And so Ron said, tell her to come over here. Where, whereabouts was it? You know, is on a little lawn so she said then so we there we were boxing day me and ron Fernhead, on our knees going through the grass and bugger me found a tooth or a couple of teeth that had fallen out of the skull anyway so with his prize we all went off and uh then he called back to me a couple of days later and he said you might think this will be funny he said but i want you to ask The girl's mother, when she took her daughter to the doctors late last year for flu, did the doctor give her, I don't know why, he might've said something like antihistamine or something like that. So yes, we got hold of mum and we said, look, you might think this is strange, but we want to know when you took your daughter to the doctor and she said, well, yeah, I did, she did and she was, she went, because she had flu. And the doctor gave her an injection and he gave her some pills, like paracetamol. So he took this back to Fernhead. He, yeah, was overjoyed because he had done a cross-section cut of these teeth. And apparently, so a tooth is like a, a, a tree trunk. You can tell a person's age down certainly down to a year and I think just about every six months you can tell a person's age so no question if you've got a 40 year old victim and a 16 year old victim you from one tooth from each you can tell their age pretty much but then it got better and he said from the chemical testing they did they could tell that at a certain age This girl had had some kind of chemical which shows up in the lines, you know, the rings in the teeth, and it makes it much more accurate to trace. He did some remarkable stuff, old Ron Fernhead. He was a hell of a character.
2: The crimes were considered so gruesome that an all-male jury was given the task to convict him. The evidence was too hideous to be seen by women. Seven men had to sit through a 21-day trial to decide whether Lam Cor Wan was to be charged with manslaughter due to diminished responsibility or found guilty of cold-blooded murder. A mother's love is hard to kill and Mrs Lam Cheung tried to rationalise her son's
1: actions. It came out of the trial that he had been allegedly abused as a child. His father had beaten him all the time as a child. His mother uh, had been interviewed by the psychiatrists for the defense. And um, his father was a Malaysian Chinese chap. That's right. Although the mother was the natural mother, the, the father had remarried a couple of times and there had been other children around in the family uh, before they came back to Hong Kong. And he had been very abusive to the young uh, young lamb. As I remember, that, uh, that was part of the information that came out during the trial.
2: Mental instability was used by the defense in an attempt to lessen his sentence. But considering what he had done, this conclusion can hardly seem unjustified. When interviewed by Dr DT Barnes, a highly regarded psychiatrist flown in from Australia, he talked a of divine intervention, communication from God leading him to commit murder. To Martin Richmond, this was new news. I asked him if he was worried that Lamb would get off with the lighter sentence due to pleading a case of diminished responsibility.
1: Well, at the time, um, well, yes, when you consider that after he was charged, he wasn't telling us mm. in any specific terms about what he later told psychiatrists who testified, who, who helped him at trial, about uh, the impulses that he felt, voices from God and all this kind of thing or being compelled when he was sitting in his car, taxi at night on a night shift and it was raining heavily on the roof and he was sort of getting messages that way. But that subsequently came out. He had been uh, run the whole gamut of all of the famous or infamous psychiatrists uh, at the time. Dr. William Green saw him. who was very famous in Hong Kong. Now, when you consider that people like the Yorkshire Ripper are saying to their psychiatrists for trial, well, uh, before I was a lorry driver, I used to dig graves, and I also used to get messages from above while I was digging the graves, telling me to get rid of people who were not worthy and that kind of thing. And he ran that at trial, and the defense of diminished responsibility worked. Whereas in this case, um, the defence of diminished responsibility wasn't accepted by the jury. It was certainly run.
2: Mr Justice Barber reminded the jury that they must make up their own minds, ignoring the media coverage that the case had been given. To pass the verdict of murder, they had to be unanimous. For manslaughter, they needed at least five of the seven jurors to agree. Three and a half hours later, the rainy night killer, the Hong Kong butcher, the jar murderer, Lam Kor Wan, was deemed of sound mind and found guilty on four counts of murder. He was sentenced to death by hanging, commuted to life in a high-security prison on the island of Lantau, just 50 minutes drive away from where he picked up his first victim. For a man who thought of himself as a filmmaker, we will end his story with a scene from the 1992 movie retelling, Dr. Lam. Lam Ko
3: wen was charged with four offences on 8th April, 1983. First, murdered Chen Sao-len on 3rd February, 1982. Second, murdered Chen Kit-fong on 29th May, nineteen eighty-three. Third, murdered... Man Manling on 17th June 1982. Fourth, murdered Leung Wing Yi on 2nd August 1982. Lam is convicted for all four
2: items. Next time on Catching Worms.
1: Sam was probably the first, but he was by no means the last.
3: When I went to the scene and, and saw the body, I was quite shocked because I recognised them.
1: The bodies were still there. We were having difficulties in how to uh, get the bodies off the off the hillside.
3: They are operating just like the mafia, Italian
1: mafia, as giants in Hong Kong. I knew in my bones that this was the right man, and he exuded absolute evil. Very little evidence to go on the scene, because obviously there's no witnesses.
3: Uh, I wasn't very far away from them at the time they were, they were being murdered. This was Braemar Hill.
2: This was the final episode in this month's Catching Worms make sure you hit the subscribe or follow button so you never miss an episode if you're listening on apple podcasts then please leave us a review and a five-star rating it helps others to find us you can follow us on instagram at Worms hk with special thanks to simon ung michelle hong kong noir by feng chi shun published by blacksmith books and of course detective martin richmond And thank you for listening.
0: Catching worms. This term means to get yourself into trouble, causing unnecessary difficulties. It may seem like an odd phrase, but this slang is often used as an abbreviation of the full saying That involves putting said worms up your rear end which, to anyone's imagination, definitely spells trouble indeed. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands,